If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can borrow one in the pew in front of you in the section back there where you see some books, the black ESV Bible. You can find John 17 on page 903. Speaking of pastor appreciation, and this is a pastor's appreciation that my family and I were able to get away on vacation for uh, two weeks. It was a good two weeks that we got to spend in 10 different states and nearly 4,000 miles of driving. Uh, it was good to be away. And vacations are, are nice. They're, they're always good. But there are always problems on vacation. And we, we ran into those problems. The only real problem that we ran into on vacation was, frankly, you people. Uh, we, we couldn't find some way to copy or facsimile you and get you sent to South Dakota and to Colorado so that we could be with you and worship with you. And uh, it, it was frustrating. It, anyone who's ever traveled, uh, who is outside of their, their known local church, knows how difficult it is to travel and to find a place to worship uh, where, where things just seem to fit and they seem to, to sit comfortably. And this is probably all the more the case with a pastor because I'm the one who kind of designs the service and, and arranges it and, and nothing ever suits me but what I want. And apparently people are unwilling to bend what they do normally to meet my wishes. So that was a real bummer. However, more than just sort of the surface level issues, what we found as we traveled in two different Sundays and two different churches sometimes were much more substantial than just the way things looked or felt. The last place that we visited, we heard a talk. They, they refused to call it a sermon. They called it a talk. And this talk was led by a man who spoke much of Jesus. Jesus was a prominent part in, in the words that he had to speak. The talk was primarily about how to avoid disaster in marriage. How can you make your marriage last and not have it end in divorce? It was part of an ongoing series that this church was apparently having on relationships. We didn't get to hear any of the other ones, just this one, and that was probably enough. But it was clear that Jesus was important and important in the instructions. If, if you have Jesus, then Jesus will help guide and direct your marriage. He will help make you less selfish and he will provide the things that you need so that you can be a faithful spouse and, and even have, although he didn't explicitly say this, the implication was there, that, that relationship flourish. There was a lot of talk about Jesus. The problem was that in that lot of talk about Jesus, Jesus was just there as a help to get other things. In this case, he was there as an aid and a help to get you a better marriage. He was there as an aid and a help to get you a better relationship. He was just something to use to get to something else. Jesus was not the vision that we were supposed to have. He was not the pinnacle of what we are made for and created for, but rather something that will simply get us to a better state of life. It reminded me of how often, and I, I think I talk about this all the time, but how, how much of Christianity is walking a tightrope. Sin so surrounds us that to our left and to our right are pitfalls. And we must make Jesus the center of everything that we do. He's not just a big part of it. 
but he is the focus of it. He's not just the importance of it, but he is the center of gravity in everything we do. And this is especially true in worship. When we gather here, it is to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. It is to lift him up. What we heard that Sunday, last Sunday, was a sermon that was centered not on Christ, but on the people in the pews. It was to help them and get them somewhere better, more holy perhaps, more uh, ethical perhaps, much more devoted to the things that God has called them to be devoted to, and all those things are good, but Jesus was just a stepping stone to get there. Our worship should be all about Jesus, and through that centering on Jesus, how we might better serve and image him. But the problem exists on the other side as well. As some want to talk so fully about the center of Jesus Christ and his majesty and his glory and the might that they will talk endlessly about our need to be slavishly devoted to him. That he is the true and good God and we are to serve him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength they generally don't get back around to how that is actually good for us. We can look at that church and think, they were so far off the mark. But that's only because when we fall off the mark, it tends to be in the other direction and we just don't notice that much. Psalm 136 is a great example of this balance. The center and the focus of that psalm, the repeating refrain is, give Thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So it is clear that the focus is that God is good. But the way the psalmist recognizes God is good, the way that becomes the center of all there is, is the 30 plus different ways in which God has shown his faithfulness and shown his kindness to people. Let us never forget that we exalt Christ both because he is worthy of it and because it is for our good. As we go through John 17 today, I hope that we might strike this sort of right balance. We come back to the book of John after taking a fairly significant break to go through 1 and 2 Thessalonians and then through the past two weeks, James 3 and 4 as Richard and Josh faithfully preached God's word. We have started John all the way back in August of 2018 and it looks like we are coming to the end of it and we indeed are in the next couple of months. As long as the Lord is willing, we will finish this gospel. John 17 comes as the closing statement of Jesus to his disciples. He has been in the midst of the farewell discourse from chapter 13 and 14 and 15 all the way up through 17 as these are the last words that Jesus will be able to speak to his disciples before he goes to his death and crucifixion. It is widely known as the high priestly prayer and that is fine for what it's worth. This text in which Jesus is praying to the Father is clearly not just for Jesus. It's interesting that oftentimes through the Gospels, through the Synoptics, and even in John, we we know that Jesus is a man of prayer. We're told in Luke, for instance, that he gets up early in the morning and goes off on his own to pray. We know that he is a man of prayer, but we are 
really irregularly told what the content of that prayer is. It's surprising how often scripture doesn't tell us what Jesus is really praying for. We know that he is praying, but we don't have the content of that prayer. Because that is true, John 17 stands as an exception in scripture. It is not only the longest prayer, but it is the longest prayer that we have of Jesus' by a mile. But we ought to know and we ought to realize that this prayer is not for Jesus himself. Two times in the Gospel of John already, we have heard Jesus pray. Sometimes an entire sentence, sometimes merely a phrase. And both times we are told this was not for Jesus' sake, nor was it for the Father's sake, but it was for our sake. In John 11, when he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus lifts up his eyes in verse 41 and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing. He's, he's telling them in the middle of his prayer. He says, I'm thankful that you hear me, but I'm not really saying this to you, Father. I'm saying this to all of them. But it's in the middle of his prayer. It's very awkward. When you hear other people do that, it's really off-putting, but this is Jesus, so it's okay. So, but I say this on the account of people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. In John 12, 28, when Jesus knows that his hour has come, and he knows that he is going to his crucifixion. He says, this short sentence, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And Jesus says in verse 30, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Indeed, as we come to these verses today, we are to be reminded that this is recorded not so that Jesus can have help and aid, but that we can know Jesus all the more. As we go to it then, we're going to read it in sections. It's a longer text, and I want to keep the sections that we're talking about fresh in your mind. So as we come first to the purpose of Jesus' prayer, let us simply read the first five verses. John 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world Existed. Again, in these five verses, I think that we can see the purpose of Jesus' prayer. Why does Jesus begin this prayer at all? Why does he pray for the disciples? Why does he pray for himself? It's clear that the majority of this section is about glorifying. It is about Jesus being glorified, the Father being glorified, the disciples even knowing and understanding the, this sort of glorification that happens. If you are people who keep a watch on the clock as I'm going through and preaching, I have a warning for you. This section, although it's five out of the 19 verses, will take up the majority of our time. So if you're concerned when I'm done, the other parts will go a little bit faster. I'm not gonna promise they're gonna go fast, but they'll go a little bit faster. I, I wanna draw your attention, first and foremost in these verses, to the sort of reciprocating way that glory is shared between Father and Son. Jesus asks 
that he might be glorified. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. But that glorification is not an end of itself. There's a purpose there. He says that the son may glorify you. As the son gets glory, he refracts that glory and reflects that glory back to the father so that the father is glorified. Jesus comes to do the will of the father. The father is glorified by that and then the father glorifies the son. Now, ultimately, in some strange sense, this makes a lot of sense because the Son is nothing else besides the incarnate Word of God, and the Word we know from the beginning of John was with God and was God. Because the Son and the Father share the same essence, if the Father is glorious, then the Son must likewise be glorious. So if Jesus gives glory to the Father, the Father must indeed give the same glory to the Son. That's how the Trinity works. But I think that we can see a little bit better how that works than just saying that it's something of a reflection. Jesus, in these five verses, says down in verse four that the way in which he glorifies the Father is by doing all that he has accomplished the Father's will has been set out to do. So the Father from time before the world began has set out a system, has set out works for Jesus to accomplish. And Jesus says, I've accomplished all of it. Now, given that he hasn't been crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, we would talk about him speaking a little bit proleptically here. What we mean by that is that Jesus is speaking now as though those things have already happened. Jesus knows that he has not quite accomplished everything, but he will, and so he is praying this before it happens. What he means by this is simply this. Jesus shows the worthiness of the Father by doing everything the Father has given him to do. And what the Father has given him to do above all things is not just to teach, it's not just to heal, it's not just to perform miracles, but it is to lay down his life for people who hate him and have sinned against him continuously from the day of their birth and even from the day of their creation. Jesus demonstrates, therefore, the glory, the goodness, the worth of God the Father by giving up his life. He who had no reason to give up his life. He wasn't sinful. Death had no hold over him. He didn't have to die, but he willingly goes to his death because his father willed it. Jesus always does what is pleasing to the father. It is indeed the purpose of his coming to lay down his life, and he is showing that the father's will is worth that. It is worth being put to death to demonstrate that I am going to do what my father has willed. Now we get a sense then in this passage of the back and forth nature of the glory. Jesus leaves the glory on high. He says, I I want you to glorify me soon with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That is, as the Father is glorious, so the Son was glorious, and before the incarnation, they were in full glory with one another. But when the word of God became a man, when he took on the added nature of humanity, something of that glory was, we wouldn't want to say necessarily diminished, but it was covered. Jesus was a magnetic person. When he went around and traveled and spoke, people listened to him, they followed him, people loved him and longed to be around him. Even the people who hated him were drawn to him. And yet, even in that, something of his glory was hidden. 
was not seen. Now let's think for just a second about what makes something glorious. It is, in a sense, really difficult to define because what makes something glorious for you is going to be different than what makes something glorious for me. It's, it's a nebulous type of thing. If we think in terms of art, you might like completely different art than I do. Perhaps you like Rubens, but I hate fat little cherubs, so I don't care for him. I like seascapes where storms are coming in for some reason. I don't, I don't even like the sea that much, but I love those things. And you might think, well, that's just pathetic and childish which is probably true. But the worth of art is oftentimes noted by what a collection of people are willing to give for it. We all can recognize that the Mona Lisa is an extremely important and noted work of art, that it is a glorious work of art because people are willing to trade in millions of dollars for it. People are willing to pay very, very good money in the Louvre simply to go in and look at the thing the cost that is associated with the art tells of its glory. Now, how glorious is God the Father? Well, the Son, who is himself glorious, who is himself God above all, who is filled with beauty and radiance, with might and power, wisdom, splendor, and majesty, who has all of those in absolute perfection, thought that the Father himself was glorious enough to not only give up some of that splendor, to leave that behind and not have it witnessed by everyone, but then to lay down his life for the will of the Father. Not only to die, but to die such an ignominious death filled with scorn and shame. The Father is worthy of that. The Father is worthy of the humiliation that was never due to him. This is the greatest declaration of how glorious God the Father is, that the Son was willing to die, not just for you, but because the Father has willed him to die. The purpose of his coming was to give up his life. As John said at the very beginning of this book, here is the Lamb of God. But... To gain such glory, God the Father must, must acknowledge the glory of the payment. If the giving of such a precious thing speaks to God the Father's glory, then God must acknowledge that the thing which is given is indeed glorious in and of itself, that it itself is worthy of acknowledgement. So as God glorifies the Son, as God says the Son is worthy of glory and honor and might and power, the fact that the Son was willing to give his life for the Father speaks of the Father's glory, which then in turn speaks of the Son's glory, which in turn fulfills the Father's glory. And around and around we go. So as the Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son, and it's a spiral that increases, never-ending, into infinity. They are infinitely glorious because the Son is worthy and the Father is worthy. And this is why we are here to worship Christ and not just use him for our own 
ends, no matter how important we might think those ends are. And marriage is exceptionally important, and your financial health is exceptionally important, and your spiritual health is exceptionally important, but those things are not the final end. We worship Christ whether we have money, health, or wealth, or whether we are depressed, we worship Christ because he is worthy of it. And I'm gonna tell you that it is necessary for our well-being that we understand that. There is a necessity, if we are going to have eternal life, in seeing that Christ and God the Father are eternally and infinitely glorious. Living forever, frankly, would stink. Have you ever actually thought about how long forever is? It's a really long time. Like, 10,000 years, right? An amazing grace. 10,000 years is like a day, but it's not even really a day. It's practically a, an infinitesimally small point in infinity. And philosophers have taken this up, and they've thought about it, and, and it doesn't take much thought before you realize that man, things would get boring. You, you can't experience everything for infinity. It, it, it becomes old. At some point in time, you've done everything. I remember when I was a kid, we had a TV, and beside our TV was a big box. Not a big box, maybe this big. It was sat on the floor, and it had numbers on it. The numbers weren't in any particular order. But you would turn the TV to channel 12, and it wouldn't come in. And so you'd go to that little box and you'd rotate it so the arrow was pointed at the 12 and you'd hear this little humming as our antenna switched on the roof to point where channel 12 came in the clearest. And if you didn't like what was on channel 12 and you wanted to try channel 66, you can do that. It's gonna take another three minutes for that antenna to swing around and then you're gonna find out what was on channel 66. And if you didn't like what was on that and the other two channels that you got, you had nothing. You had to go play basketball like a chump. If you don't like what's on, you don't get more options. Those are the options. If you miss Cheers on Thursday night, you might never see that episode again until YouTube comes around, frankly, because they're not gonna replay it on your schedule. And if you recorded it on your VCR, but you forgot to label the tape, you're done because somebody's gonna record it, something else on there. Punky Brewster or something. 35 years later, we can stream whatever we want whenever we want it. And yeah, we have to pay for some of that, but you can do it whenever you want to. You have millions of movies at your fingertips. You can find how-to videos on any topic on YouTube. You can stream old videos. You can watch any episode of any show whenever you want to. It is all at your fingertips. It is all there. You have dozens, no, hundreds, no, thousands of channels on cable television. If you would have gone back to 1985, me, my little head would have, it was actually a huge head. I had a huge head. My head would have exploded to have thought about that. And we're bored with it. We spend more time rotating through Netflix to find something to watch than we do actually watching things. You spend more time flipping through videos on YouTube before you actually watch something than it takes time to watch that thing. You're bored with it. 
And rightly so. It took you 35 years to go from unbelievable to... (laughs) What would keep you possibly captivated for eternity? What could hold your attention for eternity? If you could do anything for a long enough period of time, it's going to become old hat. You think that flying is awesome. Great, flying is awesome. Flying would be super cool. You know, the millionth hour that you put in flying, it's probably going to get old. I don't think birds are going around going, woo, they're just like, hey, this is what we do, right? This is normal, it becomes old. This is the problem with eternity. It's not just a philosophical problem. This has leaked into tons of pop culture. Tons of pop culture. Songs are written about the fact that it is death that makes love worth having. I had song picked out for you. I'm not gonna read it. It takes too long to get through. But there are plenty of songs out there that speak like this. There are plenty of pop culture movies that speak like this. It is the ending of time that makes this thing worthwhile. If it never ended, it just wouldn't be any good. Now listen to what Jesus says. In verse two, Jesus gives an interesting comparison. And you need to understand that that word since in the beginning of verse two is probably better understood as just as. It's a comparison. So he's comparing what he just said in verse one to what he is going to say in verse two. He says, glorify me in verse one that I might glorify you just as you have given me authority that I might give eternal life. That is the reciprocal nature of the glory of God as father glorifies son when the son glorifies the father is the same as the Son has been given authority and he gives eternal life to us. I'm gonna tell you that this means a whole bunch. Our eternal nature would be boring if it was only filled with non-infinite things. No matter how much you like ice cream, it will get old. No matter how much you like dogs, they will get old. No matter how much you love your wife, she is finite you will come to the end of her. No matter how much your heart is bent on that, no matter how interesting you think she is, you think your kids are, you think basketball is, it will come to an end. But, if the Father and the Son are eternally glorious, then we have reason to think that our eternal state will be filled with never-ending joy. Their glory will never run out. Their glory can never fully be consumed. Every day, we will find new things to rejoice in, new things that they are glorious in, new things to praise Father, Son, and Spirit for. Every day we will be awestruck by his power, his glory, his beauty, his majesty, his might, because those things are infinite. We can never consume them. We can never come to the end of them. In Psalm 16, God says, at my right hand are pleasures evermore. Do you know what's at his right hand? Christ. We need the Son, and the Father to be infinitely glorious. 
for nothing else can possibly sustain you for eternal life. So Jesus says this. This is the definition of eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That is eternal life. It it isn't just living forever because that can be eternal damnation. Eternal life is standing in the presence of two beings, three, including the Spirit, who is eternally glorious and filled with joy and good. This is why Christ ought to be at the center of our worship, because it is good for us that he is. We often pray, I often pray here, for your glory and our good. Those two things go together. We don't have good outside of the glory of Jesus Christ, finally and in the end. You might have little pieces of good, but you'll never have a final sense of good outside of the glory of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ's glory is seen in the good that he gives to his people. This frankly is my problem with much of the sermon or the talk that I heard last week. There was a lot of Jesus in it. That Jesus was nothing more than a help and an aid to get something better. The same way your Instapot helps you get a meal. He is to be used for some other end. But what the scriptures give us and what Christ gives us himself is a vision of him that is more glorious than that. I'm going to tell you what you need in your life is not more Jesus. What you need in your life is a more glorious Jesus. Now, if that is actually what Jesus is saying in these first five verses, and you're wise people, I will leave that up to you to determine whether that is true. It is a mighty big thing for himself to be saying. It is a mighty big thing. What gives him the right to say this? And this is where we turn to verses six and 10, and we hear of the preparation of Jesus' prayer. Jesus has already done the preparatory work that needs to be done for him to pray like this. This is what John writes in verses six through 10. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. When Jesus says your name, he says I have kept them in your name, you have given me, I have manifested your name to the world again. The name of God is not some sort of secondary power outside of God that is used in the world so you can simply speak the name of Jesus over things and and think that you're going to get what you want or think that that name carries power in and of itself. That's not what Jesus means by it. When he says, I have manifested your name, what he means by that is, I have demonstrated your character to your people. They know who God is because they can see me. They know who God is because I have been present before them. I am the image and the exact imprint of the character of God. 
And he has given himself to these people and the word to these people, and they have kept it. It doesn't mean that they have kept it perfectly faithfully or perfect in any way, shape, or form. They have many faults, and they fail in many different ways. But it does mean that they have been faithful to understanding that Jesus is the manifestation of God or that Jesus is the Christ. Now, they've got a lot more that they need to understand about that, but at the very least, at the very least, they have been faithful to that. In John 2, when many come up to him and profess that they know him, it is said that Jesus does not entrust himself to them because he knows what is in men's hearts. Never is that said of Jesus with the disciples. Jesus here is clearly entrusting himself to them. In John chapter 6, Jesus has hard words to say about eating my body and drinking my blood, and many of the disciples leave. And he looks at Peter, and he looks at the rest of the disciples, and he says, do you want to leave as well? And Peter, speaking for the rest of the disciples, says, I don't know where we would go. You alone have the words of life. When faced with going back to Jerusalem in John chapter 11, likely heading toward what the disciples think is going to be his death, Thomas finally utters, well, let's go and die with him. It may be true that they have faults, and it may be true that they will fall away, but up to this point, they have understood the word that has been given to them, that Jesus has been sent by God, that Jesus is in the very nature of God and the character of God. And thus, in here, we have these sort of very strong words in verse nine. I am praying for them. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Now it's clear in some sense that Jesus is praying for some people in the world as people who are his disciples now were once people of the world. Nevertheless, we understand it kind of precisely what he means, that those who were the fathers set before the time that Jesus came to earth, those who were destined to follow, those sheep who hear the voice of Jesus and come and follow him, that is who Jesus is praying for. We can be led astray in two different ways again when we consider how we are to handle ourselves in the world. There are people who refuse to acknowledge that there is a difference between the people of the church and the people in the world. And they, they just kind of think that we're all in this together, that the grace of Jesus goes out kind of like rain and it falls on some and it doesn't fall on others. And God is gracious in, in, in these sort of ubiquitous ways across all fields and across all nations and across all people. There's a sense in which that is true, but there's also a sense in which that is absolutely wrong. Jesus here has a clear distinction between his disciples and the rest of the world. But we need to understand very clearly what that distinction is. Because the way this is handled, sometimes in our prayers, sometimes in our thoughts, is that we are holy, we are righteous, we are good, the world is filled with ugly sinners. What ends up happening in those kinds of churches when that thought starts to take hold is sin is spoken about a lot. It is spoken of every single Sunday. But it is always spoken of as their sin, those people, the people who are ruining our country or the people who are ruining our culture or the people who are ruining our world. They are filled with ugly sin. 
but rarely in churches that start to think like that is the sin ever inside the walls of the sermon, and certainly not in the pastor's office. The distinction between the disciples and the world is not sin. Now, ultimately, it has to be, there has to be gained a holiness by the people who have been called by Christ. We're not denying that, but the major distinction that Jesus is giving here is not the fact that the people of the world are sinful and his disciples are not. Rather, it is simply the fact of election. It is God's clear and obvious choice. Listen to how this language is so so strong throughout this entire passage. Even back in verse two, that Jesus says, I will give eternal life to all you have given to me. You have given them to me. They didn't just come to me. They just didn't happen across the gospel. They didn't just pass my way, but the Father literally handed them to Jesus. I used the word literally wrong just there, forgive me. In verse 6, the disciples were given to Jesus. In verse 6, they were the fathers. In verse 7, they are from the Father's will. In verse 9, they are the fathers. In verse 10, thus, they are Jesus's. The distinction is not the ethical or the moral nature of the people who have come. It's not that people have responded in faith because they're wiser or better or smarter or in a better cultural situation. It's not because their daddies believed or because their mamas believed. It is solely because God has chosen them from before the foundation of the world to be gracious to them and for no other reason. It is unmerited love and mercy. This is what we mean by unconditional You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything to get on the good list instead of on the naughty list. It wasn't because God looked at you down through the history of the ages and said, I gotta have that one on my team. It was solely because God looked at you, you poor, wretched sinner, and said, you're mine. And yes, we will gladly proclaim that faith is central to all of it. It doesn't mean that you don't have a role to play, and it doesn't mean that we are wrong then to call for people to believe. We will stand here, and we will call for people to believe. There's every reason in the world to proclaim that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. Everything that you have done wrong demonstrates that you are a person worthy of condemnation and death and that God has every right to visit his wrath upon you and to kill you forever, permanently, but never endingly. And yet in your stead, Jesus Christ has put himself, that he might die the death that you owed, not only to show the glory of God the Father, but to show his love for you. And that if you believe, you can be forgiven for your sins. That is the same gospel call that we put out every single week here. It is the same gospel call that has gone out throughout the centuries and it goes out and the people whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world hear that and they say, yes, I will believe. And it is their faith, it is their trust, and it is God's choice. By faith, we demonstrate God's choice of ourselves. 
By faith, we demonstrate that we are those who follow Jesus. By faith, we demonstrate the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And so by walking in faith, we demonstrate the goodness of who Jesus is and what he has done because he has lived for us, he has died for us, he mediates for us even now, and he gives us eternal pleasure in his very presence. And all of that matters much because there is a substantial problem that grows out of all of this. Read with me in verses 11 through 19. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. This third portion of scripture, we would seek to speak about the problem of Jesus' prayer. The problem of Jesus' prayer. And by that, I do not mean that I'm going to fix Jesus' prayer. By that, I simply mean that Jesus makes it very clear that there is an issue. The problem is that Jesus Christ is going. He has given them the word. He has manifested God the Father to the disciples And he has kept them so that when they were going to maybe think wrongly, Jesus has corrected them. When they were walking wrongly, Jesus has corrected them. He has kept them with him like a shepherd leading them. But that shepherd is now going away. And as he is going away, he prays that the Father might then protect them. When he talks about this in the name, that you are to keep them in your name, it simply means that you are to keep them understanding who you are as I have demonstrated it, it's, it's almost equivalent to saying, keep them in the faith. Keep them faithful to what I have spoken to them and have shown them. Jesus has done this faithfully and fully through the end. He has not lost one of them, except the one who was always foretold to go that way, the son who is meant for destruction, Judas Iscariot. But Jesus is going to the Father now. So how will they be protected? He has prayed that they might be one even as God the Father and the Son are one. Indeed, what Jesus has done has kept that word, that they are unified around the very being of Jesus Christ, the Son and God the Father. So Jesus prays that the Father protect them. The easiest way to get around this problem is clearly to take the disciples out of the world because the world hates them, not because of who they are, but because of Jesus. So they are not of the world because Jesus is not of the world and they don't like Jesus because he's not of the world. People don't like people who aren't of their kind. And especially when it comes to sinful people versus the great, glorious, sinless Christ. So because the followers of Jesus look like Jesus, the world's gonna hate them. That's the problem. So 
Jesus, who is protecting them, is leaving, but they are going to become more like Christ and the world is going to hate them. What will keep them safe? Again, the obvious solution is to take them out of the world, but Jesus clearly says that's not going to be the solution. Ironically, the solution is to make the problem bigger. It's precisely what Jesus prays for. They hate me, so Father, make them more like me. We can see this in two distinct ways. First, we are to have his work. We are to work for the same things that Jesus worked for. Jesus says this, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. That is, I have set myself aside as holy so that they may also be sanctified in truth. That whole sanctification language simply means that they are set aside, that they are unique and they are dedicated to the things of God so that even as Jesus Christ has come first and foremost to do the very will of God, so now we are all the more to be set aside to do the will and the work of God. That is what we are placed here for and frankly what we are kept here for. It is a really good question. Why has God not taken you the moment you're saved to be with him? Why make you linger here and why make you suffer here when the evil one is out to get you and the world hates you? Why leave you here? Jesus says, because you are to do the very thing that I did. Keep working at establishing the kingdom of God. Call sheep into the gospel. Demonstrate and manifest the very nature of Jesus Christ the Son and God the Father to them. As Jesus gave over his life to bringing in the sheep, to demonstrating the good of the coming kingdom of God, so we are all the more to do that. Do you feel like you live your life that way? What do you feel like your purpose in life is? If you had to sort of narrow it down, not what you want your purpose of life to be, right? Not what you would would want put on your tombstone, because that's all lies, but how do you actually spend your life? What is the purpose of your life? Do you try to get just as much entertainment in as possible? Do you try to make as much money as possible? Do you try to get as many likes on Facebook and other social media as possible? Are you taken up in this political season with getting your way in the November elections? Is that what drives your purpose in life? Or do you find yourself living for a kingdom that is here and is yet still fully to come. Working with the people of God, praying for the people of God, seeking their encouragement, seeking their emboldenment, and going and taking the gospel to lost and dying people. That is the work that Christ has left you here for. First, we are to have his work, and second, we are to have his joy. Look back in verse 13. Jesus says, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world. So this prayer and everything that he has said from chapter 13 on, these things, he says, I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That the same joy that Jesus Christ has might be ours. And fulfilled here means kind of completed. That the the fullness of joy that I get to have in doing my Father's will might be the joy that they have in doing my Father's will. That just as I am joyful, even in going to the cross, as the book of Hebrews says, there is joy set before him. 
that while he might have been a man who was acquainted with grief and he might have been a man of sorrows, nevertheless, there was great joy for Jesus Christ to go forward and do the will of God because he knew that God was worthy of doing that will and he did it with joy and he did it with happiness. So that even when the disciples bring him back food at the end of John chapter four, what does he say? My food is to do the will of God, my Father. We are to have joy in doing the things that God calls us to do. And this is, I think, a rebuke to all of us who think that the the vast majority of Christianity is taken up by simply doing commands out of raw, sheer willpower. That is at best, half of what you need. By raw obedience, you might proclaim that God is great, that he is worthy of all your effort and all of your energy, that he is worthy of laying down your life for. Raw obedience might give you that. It might give you the picture of a great God, but only joyful obedience will give you a picture of a God who is both great and good. So serve him this way, even up to the point of giving your life for the kingdom of God. Paul, in the passage we read just earlier in Philippians 3, says, I've counted the loss of all things, and it's rubbish in light of Jesus Christ. Do you feel that way? I don't. The vast majority of my time, I don't. It's to my shame. And... I would think if you're being honest, it's to yours as well. Let us serve him, doing what he has called us to do with great joy, not just being obedient because we need to be obedient, but because we long to give God glory and honor, knowing that he is worthy of our lives. In the end, this is what this prayer is about, for us to see the glory of Christ and for that vision to propel our joyful obedience to him and our desire to be like him, even though it will cost us in this world. That is what Jesus wants. So friends, may this prayer be true over all of us. In faith, respond. In repentance, submit. In perseverance, be as Christ. In joy, serve and in all things give glory to God, for that is ultimately what will sustain us, what will get us through all of the bad things that we can go through in this world is the knowledge that Jesus Christ is supremely glorious, and that is for our good. Let us pray. Father, we will only be able to see the glory of Jesus while here on this earth through the eyes of faith. We cannot apprehend him visually, nor can we sense him emotionally the way we might need to to press on in this life. What we need is a faith that senses the strong glory of one who has given his life and is worthy of our worthless lives. What we need is a faith that apprehends his unmerited kindness to us. What we need is a faith that knows somehow the glorious vision that we cannot even now grasp. So Father, our prayer is simple. Give us that faith, which will apprehend the glory of Jesus, and let that faith glorify him all the more, that we might get even more satisfaction out of knowing him. This we pray, as we so often do, 
and is so very right to do now for your glory and for our good. Amen.